Y'all, you deserve professional hair color that makes you look your gorgeous best delivered right to your door. You can take your hair coloring at home to the next level with Madison Reed, and it starts at just $22. Women have had two options for coloring their hair for decades. That at-home color you got out of a box that's outdated or going to the time and expense of a traditional salon. Many clients of Madison Reed comment on how their new hair color has improved their lives. Women love their gorgeous, shiny, multidimensional, healthy-looking hair. This is game-changing color you can do at home. And you'll look like you just came out of the salon. Madison Reed color is unique because it's crafted by master colorists who blend nuances of light, dark, cool, and warm tones. And they create over 55 gorgeous multidimensional shades. Find your perfect shade at madison-reed.com. Best case, worst case listeners get 10% off plus free shipping on their first color kit with code best case. That's code best case. Hello and welcome to Best Case, Worst Case. This is Jim Clemente, former New York City prosecutor, retired FBI profiler, and writer-producer on CBS's Criminal Minds. And with me today in the studio is... Hi, Jim. It's Francie Hakes, former state and federal prosecutor. And Jim, we have another special episode of Best Case, Worst Case. I feel like all our episodes have been special lately. Well, Francie, it's only because you're on it with me. (laughs) Everyone, you should see Jim's face. He does not mean this. (laughs) But we do have a very extra special guest today, and that is... This is Bobby Chacon, retired FBI Special Agent. Well, that is very short and sweet. Bobby Chacon, he's had a very long career. We're grateful to have him discussing our next episode of Best Case, Worst Case. Today, we're going to cover a topic, a breaking story in the news about a remote compound in New Mexico. Yeah, Jim and Bobby and everyone watching, I'm sure you've seen the news this week where 11 children were discovered by the Taos County sheriffs who went out on a raid to this remote compound in northern New Mexico. They discovered uh, 11 children between the ages of 1 and 15 in what they called squalid conditions. They were all starving. They were dehydrated. There was no plumbing on the compound. And they said they found a few potatoes and a box of rice and dirty water for the children to drink. There were several adults there that were all arrested for child abuse related charges. And that's what started Jim and Bobby the investigation into this case. And I understand they also found one dead boy, somebody who was about three years of age. They did. They found some very small remains buried uh, on the compound. And I think one of the reasons that this has really reached the national consciousness is because it all started off in December in my home state of Georgia, when a mother reported that her husband had taken her then three-year-old boy named Abdul Sirhaj. She had, he had taken him out to the park, supposedly, and then never come back. And the last time the boy was sighted was presumably when the remains were found on the compound. And I just should say that the sheriffs have not officially declared that that to be Abdul's remains, but I, I suspect it probably is. So, Jim, let's start with you in this case. How does someone go from taking their own child to that child then ending up dead in the compound. Well, I think part of the problem here is we have to start talking about the circumstances. And these kids were being held in captivity. It's not that they were voluntarily there. They were being held against their will. It still is unknown where these kids came from. Were they children that were all progeny of the five adults that they found there? Or are these kids that were abducted 
somewhere or runaways or something like that. But to have kids who are from one to 15 years of age, what I've heard is that they're doing, they were training them and that this was a training ground for school shootings and other terroristic events. Well, that's right. And Bobby, part of what has really disturbed me about this story has been what I learned about the beginning of the case. And that is when the mother reported her then three-year-old son kidnapped by the father, no arrest warrants were issued. It doesn't look like anyone did any investigation because the father was a custodial parent. And the children were even spotted, some of these children were spotted just a few days later in Alabama after little Abdul was reported missing. Bobby, what should the police have been doing when a child was reported kidnapped? It depends on what the mother had done. Did the mother file a missing persons report? Did she file that she could go and file a criminal complaint that the kid was a parental kidnapping case? The police can't do anything unless they have a complaint to work off of. If the mother didn't complain to the police, which I think she did, she actually reported the child as missing. So, you know, you'd have to follow up and see, did they do a parental kidnapping case? So the bureau could get involved, the FBI could get involved, certainly with something like that. Um, so it all depends on where the legal process, uh, got to in, in Georgia. And we'd have to, you know, you'd have to look at that to see whether or not the police should have followed up on that. Well, it's really frustrating because as much as I understand this case, the FBI was not called and a local juvenile judge at some point finally issued a warrant once the father didn't bring little Abdul back. But this was after there was police contact. Jim, there was police contact in Alabama just a few days after the mother reported that the father had taken Abdul. When you say there was police contact, what do you mean? There was a car accident in Alabama just a few days after Abdul was taken by his father. And the police there said that even though they had a report that Abdul was missing, and even though his father was in that car where there was a car accident, none of the children's dates of birth that were given to the police matched little Abdul. It's still very unclear to me what that really meant happened at the scene. So apparently the father lied about the child's age, probably lied about his name, and therefore nobody actually took them into custody to actually determine who they were. They They didn't take them into custody. And worse is so you had that contact with law enforcement after the initial report of the kidnapping. Then in May, the sheriff's department in Taos County learned about this kidnapping, but felt they did not have the probable cause to go to that compound and search it. And one factor that distresses me that I feel like means they should have felt they had probable cause was Jim, their mother reported that the child was disabled. He had a brain condition that led him to have seizures. He was unable to walk. He was very disabled, this child, even though he was almost four years old. And so it seems like that should have had a higher level of interest from law enforcement, especially when the mother told the court in Georgia that the father said he wanted to perform either prayer to heal the child or an exorcism. There were some translation questions in the court, but an exorcism on a child for a mental health condition? Okay, but I think the issue here, though, is that sheriff's department didn't need a search warrant. First of all, if there are exigent circumstances where a child's life is in danger or at risk, then they don't need a search warrant to search for the safety of that child. But on top of that, they certainly could have attempted a consent search. I mean, why didn't they check. go, yeah, do a welfare check. Just say, look, we just, we've heard the kids here. We're not trying to search for anybody. We just want to check it out. I mean, obviously 
they would have found that there were other kids there in, in squalid conditions and, and probably at grave risk to their health. And so they could have then, at that point, either taken the kids into custody to, to save them, or they could have just seized the place, gotten the warrant, and then gone back in. Either way, they could have protected those kids. Obviously, it's too late for the three-year-old. And they found what they believe were his remains. And obviously, two different opportunities for law enforcement to have intervened. Maybe they would have saved that child's life. Well, and Bobby, what's really tragic about this case is that the Taos County Sheriff's Office said that they did surveillance in May when they first learned that little Abdul might be there and might be the victim of a kidnapping. And in the surveillance, they saw neither Abdul nor his father. So they felt like that was the reason that they had no probable cause. But you had a bunch of other kids living in a place with no plumbing. Were they going to school? Why wasn't a welfare right. check done? If they would have gone to the landowners who had visited this compound several times and saw children there and saw actually medical equipment for children there, um, the landowners knew that. If they interviewed the landowners, they would have known there were children there, possibly with medical conditions, and they could have certainly done a welfare check. They could have got with child services, and the sheriff could have gone in there and done a complete examination of that property under a welfare check and make sure those kids are being properly cared for. Well, that's right. And the fact that it was a remote compound and we've all seen the pictures of it doesn't mean that police or FBI aren't allowed to drive onto the compound and ask questions. They certainly were. One of the really complicating factors that I want to get y'all's take on in this case is that it turns out that little Abdul's <coughs> father is the son of a uh, well-known imam in New York. And Jim that imam testified as a character witness for Omar Abdel Rahman, mm -hmm. the blind sheikh, in the 1993 World Trade Center bombing. And this Abdul's grandfather was named as an unindicted co-conspirator in that case. And when you take that with the reports that this may have been some kind of training camp, what do you get from that? Well, obviously, it's something that needs to be investigated further. I mean, you don't take a report like that and with that kind of genealogy, I mean, it's not that, that necessarily that, that criminal behavior is going to go with the genes, but when you have that kind of information and then you trace it back and find out this is where this kid came from, well, I think that raises the stakes significantly. Well, and just uh, in the last day or so, that that imam has come forward and said that all of those 11 children and Abdul were all his grandchildren. So he said that they were all related. And it looks like Abdul's father, he had sisters and some of the children belonged to them. So it <clears throat> looks very much like it was a bit of a nuclear family. And when those children were seized under welfare, whatever the welfare laws in New Mexico, Bobby, Apparently, one of the children told their foster parents that they had been engaged in some kind of training for the purposes of assaulting a school. Right. I think that there were uh, two males and three females, adults, in, in the compound. Um, at least two of those females were sisters of the father that abducted his own child. Um, so you're right. I think that these, these, the, at least the imam claims all 11 uh, were his grandchildren, and there's good reason to believe that now, because at least three of these um, are their aunts and uncles, so they, you know, they had another male adult there. So uh, 
there is evidence of a shooting range either at the compound or nearby the compound, and that there was target practice being taken with semi-automatic rifles, long guns, um, by the children at this range. You know, just so remarkable to me that you could have a compound in the middle of the United States. I realize it's in a remote area, but it seems odd to me, Jim, and remarkable that you could have what is, in effect, a sort of a mini training camp for school shooters, which is domestic terrorism. So you've got a little mini terrorist training camp in the middle of this country, and nobody knows about it. How does that happen? Well, because, uh, well, a couple of things. One, our property rights. I mean, New Mexico and, and a lot of the Western states are very, very, I mean, they don't have huge populations in these rural areas, and people have uh, privacy rights in their property, in their private property. But when there's an issue raised, like a guy who takes his child away from the mother who also has custody of that child, that's, that's a law violation. I mean, when that happens, you just have to, you know, it trumps, that, the safety of that child trumps any privacy rights there. And the Supreme Court has held, upheld for a very long time that when a child's life is in danger, that law enforcement can, without a search warrant, search for the safety of that child. And I think that's what should have been done here. And apparently it was way too late for the youngest or the three-year-old child, but apparently it actually saved, eventually saved all these other kids. Well, one of the sad facts that came out this week was Monday when the remains of what we assume is Abdul were found, they, it was his birthday. It was his fourth birthday. So that is a birthday that little Abdul will never get to celebrate. And Bobby, you know, you're also an attorney, and I just want to talk to you a little bit about where I think sort of are the glaring deficiencies in this case from a legal standpoint. My understanding in doing some research for this is that when the mother called the police and said he never returned with their son, the comment from the police to her was that, well, you're married, you share custody of this child, Abdul, and the fact that he hasn't come back, there's nothing we can do. There's no law that prohibits him from taking her. That's just not right. Well, I don't know what the situation was, if they were, if they had joint custody, if they were technically still married, if they hadn't gone through a divorce or a separation, legal divorce or legal separation process, so there was no custody order, um, you have to look at that. And, and it's right, if, if there's no legal custody order and they both share custody of this and they're both still technically married, you know, you'd have to look at whether or not the law was, as a, as a former prosecutor, I would put it to you that, like, do you have legal process to go after him? Yeah, there there are issues here. They had an arrangement, a custody arrangement, and he violated that. If he violated that, then sure as hell they can go after him. But it, it appears that they didn't have that. No, I think that they were married. That Certainly she refers to him in the interviews that she's done as her husband. That doesn't mean they weren't estranged, but I don't think there was any kind of custody order. I certainly haven't read anything about it. However, when I was a state prosecutor in Georgia, I handled interference with custody cases. And it doesn't necessarily mean you have to have a custody order. Both parents are equally entitled to custody of the child. So if one parent takes the child, the other parent is deprived that child's custody and an order could have been entered, a warrant could have been taken. I don't understand why it wasn't. Why, why weren't the FBI called? These are decisions that were made at the beginning of the case that could have saved Abdul's life. And today, it seems like, Jim, with 
all we know in law enforcement and culture about kidnapping and children and child safety, why wasn't it taken more seriously? I think, you know, I don't think they really looked at the totality of the facts. I think they were very myopic and they just thought, oh, this is a dispute between husband and wife and that's it. And they treated it like that. And in the end, it ended up basically pulling a thread on a much huger problem, which is that they were actually having, you know, these kids being, well, malnourished and put through some sort of terrorist training. And that's, that's really horrible. I mean, these kids would have grown up in that environment. They would have, wouldn't have known anything other, and they probably would have been extremely lethal. Well, and Bobby, I know you worked, you you did, you were trained to to collect evidence uh, at some point in your FBI career. You worked in that evidence unit. And one of the things that drove me crazy when I was doing the research for this particular episode was that the father, according to the mother, the father called her multiple times after he took little Abdul. He called her multiple times to say, oh, I'm coming home soon. I'm only going to keep him for another night. So what does that tell me and tell you as trained investigators? There is an electronic trail. Why weren't the police looking for him wherever his cell phone or whatever phone he was calling from was pinging? That's well, classic evidence, right? No, it looked to me like, like clearly this wasn't, wasn't being conducted as an active investigation. They took the report, the father took off with the kid, and and they were not going to do anything about it until the father showed up in the legal system in some other way. Suppose he committed another crime and they had to get him. So it looks to me like this wasn't an active investigation in going after and trying to find this child. Well, and it should have been a heightened investigation, right, Jim? We have a child with a severe disability who, while he's almost four years old, he cannot walk uh, he had some kind of seizure condition, so he needs medication. The mother said that every time she spoke to her husband, she said, is he taking his medication? Is he okay? And he never told her whether he was either. So it seems like this was a real ball that was dropped. Yeah, and I wonder if while he's having these conversations where he's saying, I'm coming home in a day or so, I'll be back soon with him, where the child was already dead. Well, yeah, and I assume we'll find out once we figure out whether it was Abdul's body that was recovered from the compound and when an autopsy well, is done. Well, if it isn't his body, they certainly didn't recover him as one of the live children. No. So the chances of, unfortunately, Abdul being alive are slim to none. I know. I think that's absolutely true. And so let's talk briefly before we finish about uh, on this topic about potential charges in the case. Obviously, it depends upon whether or not that's Abdul, whether there are some kinds of charges, but you've got the body of a child buried in a compound. Whether or not those bring murder charges depend on what evidence they find, right? Yeah, I mean, there may or may not be any kind of physical evidence on the actual body or the remains, <laughs> and that may make it very difficult. However, what they do have is 11 children some of whom are in their teenage years, and they may be great witnesses. They may be able to tell exactly what was going on there and exactly what happened to that child. I heard some rumor that, that the father had been beating the child. Um, I don't know how strong that evidence is or whether it was unreliable, but that came from somewhere. And if they can source that and make, make, a reliable, make that a reliable source, then I think that they could build a case against him for murder. Well, the thing I worry about a little bit, Bobby, in this case, when if you set the murder charges aside for a second, think about the child abuse charges where the children were malnourished, being trained to become domestic terrorists and didn't have enough uh, water and dirty conditions. 
you've got child abuse. So the people collecting evidence and talking to those children have a very important job because if those children are the children of all of those parents, they may be very reluctant witnesses. Well, I, they'll, they'll definitely be reluctant witnesses because, in, in you know, these kids were so isolated from any other adults in their lives. They didn't go to school. They didn't have access to teachers and counselors and certainly other children. Um, so if these are their parents and these are the only adults they've known, you know, throughout most of their lives, it's going to be extremely difficult. Except that I'm hoping that they took these kids to a child advocacy center. If they did and they're and then they're put into foster care in the meantime, hopefully they won't even know as they're recounting facts. Hopefully they won't even know that they're, quote, testifying against their parents. They'll just be recounting facts. If they're interviewed properly and if they're interviewed in an environment that, that isn't threatening and encourages them to talk, they'll get the information out of them. Hopefully that will be enough to keep them away from these bad parents and lock up the people, whoever they were, that were training them and planning for them to kill other people. But it's very important, as Jim points out, that these interviews and the handling of these children have to be done by trained professionals. I was never trained in interviewing children that have gone through this kind of trauma. I wouldn't, I, I would bring in an expert if this was my case. I wouldn't even venture to try to interview these children. I would get experts in. So it's really important that they bring in people that are trained in, in dealing with children of, uh, that are victims of trauma and this type of trauma and things like that. These the, the local sheriff should not be handling this on their own. They should be consulting real big experts in this area to do these interviews. Well, they should be. And this is a case that will end at some point with some court action, right? But you're going to have co-defendants. You've got five adults in there. You're going to have co-defendants pointing the finger at each other. This is definitely, as Bobby says, a complex investigation. And we expect any day now to hear whether or not the remains were officially declared to be that of little Abdul, but we're going to follow this case and we will keep letting you all know what happens. In the meantime, I wanted to do a quick update uh, to the extent we have new information on the Molly Tibbetts disappearance. We talked about that last week and I wanted to talk with Jim and Bobby a little bit about some of the new developments. Last week, Jim, we reported that the pig farmer had declined to um, take a polygraph test when mm -hmm. it was offered to him. Well, we have learned that this week, earlier this week, he took a polygraph test, right. which is significant to me in the fact that you're talking about law enforcement maybe zeroing in on him, but also significant was the fact that he has declined to tell the media what they asked him or whether or not he was given any results of that. What do you think about that? Well, first of all, polygraph tests are only good as good as the interviewer, as the administrator. Polygraph is literally not a way of reading somebody's brain. It's an interview technique. It's something that can give indicators of stress, which can indicate deception. And so it has to be used properly for it to be effective. And so my hope is that they got somebody who was extremely experienced, knew what he was doing, knew what kinds of questions to ask, and knew how many questions to ask. Because sometimes you overwhelm people with these questions and they're really, the results are, are inconclusive. So hopefully they had a good polygrapher who used it as an interview tool and then got information as a result of that. Now, the fact that he's out talking to the press after the polygraph tells me that they didn't get any kind of confession from him or any kind of evidence that they can use to, as probable cause to arrest him. So to me, that might mean that he's not the doer in this, that he's not the bad guy, but 
it doesn't mean that he's completely squeaky clean either. Well, and Bobby, something we talked about last week, too, was the evidence that we hoped that the investigation was gathering from Molly's Fitbit. We know that there was some evidence, at least, that we heard they were looking at the Fitbit data. And we asked specifically about her cell phone. Well, we've been it's been confirmed this week that the Fitbit and the cell phone are definitely missing. They were not found in the house where Molly was staying. And even more significantly, the roommates have now come forward and said, they don't see any sign of a struggle in that house. So what did those pieces of evidence change for you or tell you, Bobby, about the case investigation? It's confusing because I think initially we were told that they had the Fitbit or that they were going on Fitbit or they were analyzing. Yeah, that you can do that remotely. In other words, you're not looking at adding it to a Fitbit Mm -hmm. app or a Fitbit. Right. So I think they processed as much of that information as they can. Um, I think from the beginning, we thought that there was no sign of a break-in. So she was either taken, you know, at the end of that run or, you know, she got into that house and she supposedly went on the boyfriend's computer, was using that computer. Um, and then somebody entered the house, somebody, you know, it could be somebody that was able to convince her that they needed to be or should be in that house. Either that's somebody that's familiar to her or that's somebody that's posing as, you know, someone that needs to be in the house for whatever reason. Yeah. Well, what it tells me, though, all this new information this week or these few pieces of information this week is that the investigation is aggressively ongoing. And I, for one, am happy to hear that. I hope that people continue to talk about Molly so that the the attention that is being paid to the case will hopefully lead to someone and has led this week to the last piece of information we have that's new. And that is that someone in town has come forward and said that they think they might be the last person to have seen her alive because they saw her jogging that day and said that they had seen her jogging on a regular basis. And I bet you that he was immediately a suspect and has maybe been cleared or not cleared, but he did come forward to say, oh, I saw all this press about this missing girl. And I said to myself, I wonder if that's the girl who usually jogs by here and I haven't seen in a while. Significant? But usually jogs by here, that to me is a clue because in my understanding, she didn't usually jog by there because she was only staying at her boyfriend's house because they were away. So that is kind of interesting to me. Why would he think that, or why would he make a statement that she usually jogs here and now I don't see her anymore? Why is he looking for her? Well, that about wraps it up for this episode of Best Case, Worst Case. Till next time, thank you for listening. Best Case, Worst Case is an XG production. Produced by Jim Clementi at Empire Studios, L.A. Engineered and edited by Mike Thal. Music composed and performed by Simba Sumba. And hosted by Wonder. You can listen to Best Case, Worst Case on your favorite listening app. We are on Spotify, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, and wherever you listen to podcasts. Knowledge is power, and when we know the facts about sexual abuse, we can better protect kids. Darkness to Light has already trained more than 1.4 million adults to keep children safe from sexual abuse. I'm one of those 1.4 million, Jim. Using their Stewards of Children Prevention Training, they give you and gave me the facts, tools, and tips I needed to help keep the kids I love safe, and you can do the same with their Stewards of Children Prevention Training. Get trained today to prevent, recognize, and react responsibly to child abuse in your community.
Learn more about darkness to light and child sexual abuse prevention at www.d2l.org. That's D, the numeral 2, L.org. <laughs>